Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this 82nd episode on radiology controversies, we have the one and only walking encyclopedia of emergency medicine, Dr. Walter Himmel. And for the first time ever on EM cases, a radiologist, Dr. Ryan Margot, the clinical director of interventional radiology and the deputy chief of medical imaging at North York General Hospital. Now, before we jump into the radiological pearls and pitfalls episode, I wanted to let you know about a fantastic course to help you sharpen your orthopedic skills, the CASTED course. It's hands down the best hands-on orthopedic course for emergency doctors. The amazing thing about the course is that Aaron and his crew travel all over the country to bring you the course. So he does dozens of these courses every year. Go to casted.ca to find a course that's near you. And if you haven't already signed up for the EM Cases Q&A Pearl of the Week, where you receive one free practice-changing pearl in your inbox each week, go to the EM Cases website and hit the Sign Up for our newsletter button. And now, radiology controversy. In the U.S. over the last 15 years, there's been a faster increase in imaging utilization than any other physician service, including major procedures and lab tests. In Canada, we run up an annual radiology bill of more than $2.2 billion. This escalation in imaging is likely due to a variety of factors, including availability of technology, inappropriate imaging referrals, increasing patient expectations, overuse of follow-up imaging, vague reports, incidental findings, increasingly busy practices, and a paucity of resources and guidelines. Some of the recommendations from a recent Canadian Choosing Wisely campaign go like this. Avoid imaging for low back pain, minor head trauma, and uncomplicated headache unless red flags are present. Don't start with CT for children suspected of appendicitis. And don't order CT routinely in the workup of syncope with a normal neurologic exam. These are all fantastic reminders for us, in my opinion. But still, we can do better. We can minimize potentially harmful imaging while at the same time improve our diagnostic accuracy by gaining more knowledge about the specific indications of various imaging modalities in common clinical scenarios, thinking carefully about how the likelihood ratios change from pre to post imaging, understanding the limitations of different imaging modalities, predicting the radiation effects, and knowing when we really need to push for advanced imaging like MRI. So, With the help of my colleague, my friend and mentor, the walking encyclopedia of EM, Dr. Walter Himmel, and North York General's Deputy Chief of Radiology, Dr. Ryan Margot, we'll cover a potpourri, a smorgasbord, a mishmash of radiology controversies, pearls and pitfalls, if we can fit it all into one hour. Ready for this? In part A, we'll discuss the following. X-rays, the value of chest X-rays in chest pain patients. Commonly missed time-sensitive subtle findings on chest x-ray. What to do with pulmonary nodules discovered on chest x-ray. The value of abdominal x-rays and how to interpret them properly. In part B, we'll get into CT. When contrast is needed for CT, abdo, or head. The limitations of CT and when ultrasound is preferred. The truth about radiation dose plus newer low-dose protocols and when to use them. Finally, when an MR is really needed on an emergent basis. So in the spirit of getting the job done, what do you guys say? Should we get the show on the road? All righty, let's start. Absolutely, Anton. Let's get going. Okay, we'll jump straight into our first case. A 50-year-old woman comes into the ED with a 12-hour history of constant burning retrosternal chest pain that radiates to the right shoulder and is associated with nausea but no other symptoms. She admits to drinking five units of alcohol daily and smokes a pack a day. She has no other cardiovascular risk factors, no thromboembolic risk factors, 
and no arterial dissection risk factors. Her vital signs are normal, and her physical exam is non-contributory. Now, we see a bajillion patients like this, and it always crosses the mind, does this patient require a chest x-ray? Now, there's the clinical decision tools from the auto group on this. The American College of Radiology has chimed in on this with their appropriateness criteria. There's the Rothrock criteria and the modified Rothrock criteria. Dr. Himmel, which patients with chest pain require a chest x-ray? In this case, this 50-year-old woman, I'm considering the possibilities of ACS, reflux, anxiety, alcoholic gastritis. Those are the things that go through my mind, and I'm probably going to do tests or assessments to look into that further. I'm not too worried about pulmonary disease being a cause of any of her symptoms. If I was worried about pneumonia, if I was worried about a pulmonary embolism, if I was worried about a dissection, I would certainly get a chest x-ray. Those aren't issues here. However, there's one exception here. Steele from Ottawa, of course, did rules on this matter. And the question he asked was, when you're investigating ACS, should the patient have a chest X-ray? And the initial paper he published four or five years ago in the Cain Journal Emergency Medicine suggested that if the patient has any of the following three and you're working the patient up for ACS, you might consider or you should get a chest X-ray. If they have a history of congestive heart failure or if they're long-term smokers, or if they have findings in their chest, such as wheezing or crackles, you should get a chest x-ray in those patients when you're working up for ACS. Now, do I always follow that rule? No. But in long-term smokers who are having chest symptoms, I would probably ask, and I do ask most of the time when I recall is, have you had a chest x-ray in the last year or two? And if indeed they're smokers and they're having symptoms and they haven't had a chest x-ray for a long time, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, that's the person I would get a chest x-ray in. So I understand that the Steele study was actually not validated and that there were some subsequent studies that challenged that rule. Yeah, so Ian Steele himself would say you've got to do external validation before you apply a rule. In an article more recently in Academic Emergency Medicine, Ian Steele's rule was not sufficiently sensitive or specific to be reliably used. Therefore, they suggested other criteria such as age over 65, the presence of a fever, to put it differently, people who are at high risk for having pulmonary findings. So that's the modified Rothrock criteria. I think it was age over 65, history of alcohol use history of congestive heart failure, fever, hypoxia, tachypnea, or decreased breath sounds. Yeah, so that's the rule. The trouble with that rule was the sensitivity was 100%, but the specificity was awful. You had tremendous numbers of false positives, which is believable when you're x-raying everybody with age over 65 who's having ACS. So I use my clinical judgment, quite frankly. To put it differently, if it's a smoker who hasn't had chest x-ray for a long time, I will certainly get a chest x-ray. If I'm worried about pulmonary disease, such as pneumonia or a COPD exacerbation or an aortic dissection, I'll get a chest x-ray. I have to rely on my clinical sense. But certainly, if it's somebody under 50 who doesn't smoke, who doesn't have any pulmonary findings, and doesn't have wheezing, and doesn't have vent drawing, I am not going to get a routine chest x-ray to investigate ACS. And that's a lot of patients. So Dr. Margot, let's say we order a chest x-ray on this 50-year-old smoker and drinker with chest pain. Although our diagnostic yield will be low, what are some of the key subtle but important chest x-ray findings that in your experience ED docs tend to miss? I think that's an excellent question, Anton. There is literature to tell us where in chest x-ray things are commonly missed. But in my experience, two areas where there are often problems are the apices and the lung bases. And this is because there's a lot of overlap at those two sites. At the apices, you have overlap from the first rib and the clavicle, and at the lung bases, you have overlap from the hemidiaphragms. Now, at the lung apices, one of the classic things that we think about being missed is something like a pneumothorax. But in my experience, eMERGE docs are usually pretty good at picking that up because they know where to look. One of the important things that I have seen missed, and particularly in this scenario with a smoker, would be something like an apical or pancose tumor, which is sitting at the very top of the lungs and can be hidden by the clavicle. 
Another important diagnosis that you wouldn't want to miss at the apex would be something like tuberculosis or cavitary lung disease. So we should always be looking at the apices and what we should be looking for symmetry. We should be looking just for something that's unusual or what specifically should we be looking for at the apices? I think the best word there was the symmetry. So compare the one apex to the other. And if one looks too white or too dense on chest x-ray, then you have to be suspicious. Okay. So apices are the first thing that we should take that one extra second to look at when we're going quickly firing through our x-rays. Just take one more second to look at those apices for any asymmetry or anything that's more white on one side or that looks kind of unusual. And then the second thing was the lung bases. What are we looking for at the lung bases? So what we're looking for at the lung bases is to make sure that there's no airspace disease or abnormalities that are being hidden by the hemidiaphragm. And a good pearl for that part of the chest x-ray is to carefully scrutinize the lateral view. You want to look at the posterior or back of the lung, way down just above the hemidiaphragm on the lateral view, and you want to see that part of the lung get darker, not whiter. If it is getting whiter, it means that there's possibly an abnormality there. Okay, so as you're going from the apex down to the hemidiaphragms, the lung normally gets darker and darker and darker and darker. It should be pretty much black by the time you get down to the hemidiaphragms. If you see some white there, then you should suspect an infiltrate or some other mass. That's right. And that's when you could then correlate to your frontal view, looking carefully again for symmetry. Okay, great. So those are two great pearls. Don't forget your apices and scrutinize a lateral chest x-ray to look just above the hemidiaphragms for something hiding there. Now, let's talk about the dreaded pulmonary nodule finding, where... We've all been there where we order a chest x-ray for, let's say, this 50-year-old smoker and drinker with chest pain, and we're not expecting to find anything. And we get a report back from the radiologist that shows a 4-millimeter non-calcified right apical nodule. Now, we know that about 5% of pulmonary nodules turn out to be cancer, and that the bigger the nodule, the higher the risk of cancer, especially if the patient's a smoker like this patient. But we also know that pulmonary nodules are very common in smokers. In fact, about 50% of smokers over the age of 50 have at least one nodule. Now, we can't ignore the nodule because we don't want to get a letter in 5 or 10 years that the patient's dying of cancer because of the nodule that we neglected to follow up on. Remember, this is the chest x-ray that you ordered, so you're responsible for it. Can you just review for us what we should do with the incidental pulmonary nodules found on chest x-ray? Let's just start with what makes a nodule a benign nodule? Which are the ones that we can ignore? This is a great topic, and I think you've given a perfect scenario for us to discuss it. The literature gives us guidelines on what to do with pulmonary nodules, but those guidelines are actually based on the CT appearance of the nodule. In this case, we're dealing with a chest x-ray finding. So the first thing that we have to decide is, does this chest x-ray finding require any further follow-up? There's no hard and fast rules on this of what you should and shouldn't do, but I think two important principles would be, number one, if we have prior chest x-rays and we can show that this nodule has been stable for at least two years, then it is most certainly going to be benign and probably doesn't require further workup. Additionally, if we can be certain that this nodule is heavily calcified, so it's denser than bone, then we are sure that it's going to be a granuloma and it probably doesn't require further workup. So let me just clarify here. What makes a benign nodule is a small nodule, less than five millimeters, that's been shown to be stable over at least two years, or that's heavily calcified, so it looks like a little piece of bone on the chest x-ray. So those are really the only two situations where we can pretty much ignore the nodule. All other situations when it comes to new nodules, we need to follow up on. So let's get into a little bit about how do we decide how to follow up on these. I understand that some people suggest just repeating the chest x-ray. Some people go straight to CT. How do you make those kind of decisions? So I think actually it depends on what kind of resources are available to you. In some places, CT is not very available. And depending on the radiologist's suspicion or the suspicion of the findings, it may be reasonable to do a follow-up chest x-ray. So we're talking about a nodule that we think is probably granuloma or the nodule that's small, we can do a short-term follow-up. However, our best evidence-based guidelines are based on CT appearance of nodules. And those are essentially the Fleischer criteria. And what the original Fleischner guidelines 
stipulate is that you can classify nodules based on their size. So less than four millimeters, four to six millimeters, six to eight millimeters, or greater than eight millimeters, and on the patient's risk factors. So if a patient is low risk for lung carcinoma or high risk for carcinoma, for example, if they're a smoker or have occupational exposure. And depending on the nodule's size or the patient's risk factors, we have follow-up recommendations and a time interval for when a follow-up should be done. There are also updated Fleischner guidelines, which give us further information on what to do with pulmonary nodules. And those address the specific CT appearance of the nodule, whether it is solid, subsolid, or ground glass. And the take-home message from the updated guidelines is that subsolid or ground glass nodules actually have a higher chance of being a low-grade adenocarcinoma, and those type of nodules require longer follow-up over time. I think the bottom line is most nodules are going to require a CT scan. I think this is all about probabilities. And it's nice to know if it's four millimeters or less and heavily calcified, which means it's a granuloma, it's almost certainly benign. And they still have to be referred back to their family doctor. If you've got a small four millimeter nodule that's heavily calcified, in the emergency department, you're probably not going to get a CT scan, but you are going to arrange a follow-up with your family doctor or a clinic. If it's 5 millimeters or 6 millimeters or 10 millimeters or more, you can be sure of nothing. We know at a centimeter, there's at least a 10% chance of cancer. They require a follow-up, a range of follow-up. If it's 2 centimeters, 2.5, it looks really bad, sure, you might want to get a CT in the emergency department. But the bottom line is a range of follow-up Dismiss nothing. When you get a report, four millimeter nodule seen, don't throw the piece of paper away. Call the patient, tell them you've got a nodule there. It's probably okay. You've got to see your family doctor. We're going to fax them a report or we're going to refer you to a clinic. That's the bottom line. They need follow up. Well, I got to tell you a story, you know. <laughs> About 30 years ago, after a bit of practice, I thought I might want to become a radiologist. So I took three weeks off, and I went to McMaster University and sat in the radiology suite reading x-rays. So it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I was reading x-rays and reading x-rays and reading x-rays, and I figured, Christ, it's got to be 3 in the afternoon by now. I looked at the clock. It was 8.20. 20 minutes felt like six hours. No radiology. I wish I could have done it, but it's not for me. (laughs) Well, it's good we have people like Ryan. Thank God. Awesome. Thank God. But, you know, every emergency doctor knows you get the occasional radiologist who always writes down clinical follow-up is indicated. Ugh. (laughs) Don't ignore it when it comes to nodules. All right, time for a review. Ready? Here we go. The topic is chest x-rays, and we covered three important questions. First, which patients who present with chest pain actually require a chest x-ray? Next, what are some important subtle findings that ED docs tend to miss on chest x-ray? And finally, what do we do with the incidental pulmonary nodules that we find on chest x-ray? So first, which patients with chest pain need a chest x-ray? Well, more than 70% of patients who present with chest pain who are suspected of ACS receive a chest x-ray. Now that's a lot of chest x-rays, most of which don't need to be done. So how can we do better? Well, probably the best guide we have for which patients with non-traumatic chest pain don't require a chest x-ray are the modified Rothrock criteria. They are number one, age over 65, number two, history of alcohol use, number three, history of congestive heart failure, number four, fever, number five, hypoxia, number six, tachypnea, number seven, or decreased breath sounds. I'll repeat that. Age over 65, History of alcohol use, history of congestive heart failure, fever, hypoxia, tachypnea, or decreased breath sounds. 
Now, Ian Steele and the Ottawa Group tried to simplify the criteria down to three variables, CHF, smoking, and abnormal auscultation, but unfortunately, they weren't able to validate their results. So that's which patients with chest pain in the ED require a chest X-ray. The next question in our review is what are some important subtle findings that ED docs tend to miss on chest X-ray? Now, there's two areas where we can easily miss stuff because of overlapping structures, the apices and the lung bases. So scrutinize the apices looking for asymmetry or any whiteness that shouldn't be there. And take a look at the lateral chest X-ray at the lung bases where badness can be hidden by the hemidiaphragm. Make sure that as you go from the apex down to the hemidiaphragms, it gets darker and darker. Because if you see white stuff near the hemidiaphragms, then there's probably an infiltrate or some other nastiness there. You can then check for asymmetry on the AP view to confirm your suspicion. So that's just a couple of the things that ED docs tend to miss on chest X-ray that you should really look for on all chest X-rays that you order. Now, our third question in our review on chest X-rays is what to do with the incidental pulmonary nodule that we wish we never saw in the first place. Well, first, it's good to know that around 7% of pulmonary nodules found on X-ray turn out to be cancer. The patient risk factor is that increase the likelihood that a nodule is cancerous are age, smoking, and occupational exposure. And then in terms of the nodule itself, the bigger the nodule, the higher the risk of malignancy. The more calcified and smoother the border, the less likely. So nodules less than 5 millimeters that are heavily calcified with smooth borders in a patient with no risk factors can be considered benign because it would be really, really, really rare for one of those patients to have cancer. Now, all other nodules have more than a 1% chance of being cancerous and require some kind of follow-up imaging. And CT is the follow-up imaging modality of choice. So the newest Fleischner criteria dictate when nodules found on CT need further follow-up according to size, risk factors, and whether the nodule is solid or ground glass. The bottom line with solitary pulmonary nodules that are found on chest X-ray or CT is don't ignore them. All patients with a new or presumed to be new pulmonary nodule found on chest X-ray require follow-up and explanation of the finding and good documentation. Knowing a bit about which nodules are high risk and which are low risk can help you counsel your patients. All right, next we're gonna talk about the indications and value of abdominal x-rays. Next up is the topic of abdominal x-rays. And my question to the world is, is the abdominal x-ray dead? So let's go through a case. A 60-year-old man with a remote history of appendectomy who's otherwise healthy comes in complaining of progressive, diffuse, crampy abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting over the past six hours. On exam, his vital signs are normal except for a heart rate of 110 and he's got maybe a bit of a distended abdomen and maybe a bit of tenderness all over the abdomen with normal bowel sounds. You're thinking, this could be bowel obstruction. I'd better get some kind of imaging to confirm my suspicion. So, Dr. Himmel, first, in this patient, would you order an abdominal X-ray? And in general, what are the indications, if any, for an abdominal X-ray in the ED? That's a great question. I must say I'm ordering less and less and less. The first question is, does this patient require imaging at all? So it's all about the differential diagnosis. If I think this person's got food poisoning or gastroenteritis, both diagnoses about which you've got to be careful, I'm probably not going to get imaging. But let's say I'm worried about somebody who may have a bowel obstruction or a perforation or some other disease that may require surgery at some point or early follow-up, then I'm going to have to get imaging. However, it depends on the time of the day, it depends where you are, and it depends on your clinical assessment. 
If I think someone's got a perforated bowel and they have a rigid abdomen, I want to call a surgeon immediately and getting a CT scan may take a couple of hours. I may get a quick AP of the chest and abdomen to look under the diaphragm so I can call a surgeon immediately. I don't do that very often. If I think someone is going to require surgery or may require surgery or follow-up and needs time to declare themselves, and probably the test of choice right now is a CT of the abdomen. Certainly, if I'm working in a place where it's not easily available, I'm going to probably go with standard abdominal views. But this is a big problem. If it's 4 o'clock in the morning, I can get a CT scan at 7 o'clock to get abdominal views, knowing for well I'm going to get a CT anyways, or do I wait? So if a CT scan is not readily available, and I have to know now because it's an urgent problem, I will get three views of the abdomen, knowing full well it may not be enough. So there's still a place for three views. Certainly air in the diaphragm, if you have to know fast, has a role. The foreign body, it's got a role. As far as small obstructions are concerned, the sensitivity of three views of the abdomen is probably in the area of 60, 70, 75%. That leaves 30% where it's going to miss, and of that 30, it may be suggestive in about 20%. So it's not a great test, but it's not bad. And certainly, if this patient's been to the hospital five times in the last year, and they've admitted five times for self-resolving bowel obstructions, do I really want to get a CT scan and then a CT scan and a CT scan again? And someone like that, I may make a clinical decision. If I suspect they can wait and they may resolve, I may just get an ordinary standard abdominal view. So I think those are great points, Walter. There's no question in the literature that if you don't know the patient's diagnosis, the CT is by far the more sensitive and specific test, and that the abdominal films only provide limited information. I think you also highlighted one important point is patients who we do know their diagnosis, for example, chronic bowel obstruction, perhaps they have an underlying malignancy, and in that scenario, a baseline abdominal x-ray and then follow-up serial abdominal x-rays does provide us a lot of diagnostic information in that subset of patients, you may be able to avoid repeat CTs. Okay, so there's three or four indications really for abdominal x-ray. One is to look for a foreign body, because at least if it's radio opaque, it'll show up and that's easy to do. Second is if you've got a patient that's so unstable that you can't send to the CT scanner and you're suspecting that they've got a perforated viscous and they've got free air under the diaphragm, you can do a quick chest x-ray, abdominal x-ray to look for free air. And thirdly, for the patient who has a known diagnosis, such as Crohn's disease, for example, with recurrent bowel obstructions and have been scanned a million times already, and you want to avoid the radiation, then you might elect to do an x-ray as a screening test. Yeah, it's more reasonable there in that situation because what you're looking for is a really large dilated small bowel. But that being said, It's still about the clinical assessment. That's super important. Absolutely. So while doing an abdominal x-ray in the ED leads to treatment changes only 4% of the time, according to one observational study, and we all know that CTs are way better, abdominal x-rays should be considered for suspected radio-opaque foreign bodies like body packers, for example, for free air under the diaphragm in an unstable patient, as Dr. Hilma was explaining, and patients who have had recurrent bowel obstructions and multiple CTs in the past who are presenting with a similar clinical picture. Now remember that while the sensitivity of abdominal x-ray is really poor for small bowel obstruction, somewhere between 50 and 70%, the specificity is pretty darn good, like in the high 90s. So if you see a small bowel obstruction on abdominal x-ray for someone who you know the underlying diagnosis already, the surgeons might not need a CT scan, or at least the CT scan can wait until the morning. Now, since we're ordering less and less of these abdominal x-rays, our skills may be degrading over time. So let's get into exactly what we should be looking for and some of these indications we've been talking about. So you might be wondering which x-ray views are the best for detecting pneumoperitoneum. Well, the left lateral decubitus and upright AP chest x-ray are the best x-rays for detecting free air in the belly. Now, don't forget that the upright chest x-ray to detect free air requires the patient to be sitting erect for a few minutes 
to allow the air to rise up underneath the hemidiaphragms. So if the patient's too sick to do an upright chest x-ray, then do a portable left lateral decubitus. Now, if you're savvy at point-of-care ultrasound, you can also look for free air in the belly using your portable ultrasound. Now, ultrasound isn't as good as CT at detecting free air, but it may be better and faster than x-ray, depending on the skill of the ultrasonographer. Finally, we were talking about getting an abdominal x-ray for someone suspected of a bowel obstruction. Can you just review for us what to look for for bowel obstructions? It seems like there's all different kinds of interpretations out there in terms of what actually suffices to diagnose a bowel obstruction on x-ray. What are the true criteria for an obstruction on an x-ray? So when you scrutinize an abdominal x-ray looking for bowel obstruction, I think one of the most important things to remember is that the x-ray can be completely normal and the patient can still have a bowel obstruction. However, there are signs that we use to help us clue into the fact that the patient may have a bowel obstruction. One of the key ones is the diameter of the small bowel, and normal small bowel should not be greater than 3 centimeters in diameter. So if you see small bowel that's greater than 3 centimeters in diameter, you need to be concerned. And particularly if you have more than one instance of small bowel being greater than three centimeters. Similarly, small bowel air fluid levels are a worrisome feature, particularly if they're multiple. One little pearl that I'd like to point out is how to determine what is small bowel and what is large bowel. When you look at abdominal x-ray, the colon or large bowel is typically on the periphery of the film, and the small bowel is typically in the center. So the place where you need to scrutinize for the size of the bowel and for the small bowel air fluid levels are the central regions of the abdomen. Another distinguishing feature between small and large bowel is the bowel folds. In the colon, the folds or the haustra do not cross the entire lumen on x-ray. In the small bowel, the folds or valvula conventes do cross the entire lumen. So the key things then are the air fluid levels. The more air fluid levels, the more likely that for small bowel, if it's at least three centimeters then you're thinking small bowel obstruction, especially if it's in more than one spot. And you also want to look at the haustration, see if those folds are going all the way across the bowel or not. I learned a nice cute little rule. It's called the rule of 36912. That's a beautiful little rule. The small intestine should not be wider than three centimeters. And if it's close to six, it's the risk of rupture. The large bowel should not be more than six centimeters. If it's close to nine, it's probably going to rupture. And the cecum shouldn't have a diameter more than 9 centimeters. It's more than 12, it's probably going to rupture. So 3 centimeters for a small bowel, 6 centimeters for the large bowel, and 9 for the cecum. What about lack of air in the rectum? Is that helpful in diagnosing small bowel obstruction? Uh, Yeah, that can be a sign, particularly if it's a late obstruction. I agree totally, Ryan. But let's face it, that's neither sensitive or specific. In plain words, it's not that helpful. I think it's important to remember that in the good old days when I started 37 years ago, patients waited a really long time before they came to emerge. Mm -hmm. So they often had decompression of their intestine beyond the obstruction, but people are coming early with their bowel obstructions. What does that mean? It means they're still passing some gas, probably. They still have air in the rectum. So... Having air in the rectum passing gastrostool does not rule out a bowel obstruction. So again, the rule of 36912 for bowel obstruction says that the small bowel is normally less than 3 centimeters in diameter. If it's greater than 6 centimeters, it's at high risk of rupture. The large bowel is normally less than 6 centimeters in diameter, and if it's more than 9 centimeters, it's at high risk for rupture. And the cecum is normally less than 9 centimeters. So that's all we're going to talk about x-rays for now. In the second part of this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the key issues related to CT scans. If we look back at the history of CT utilization over the years, we see that the rates of CT use steadily increased from the 1990s through to about 2010. The literature was brimming with papers showing that in general, we were ordering way too many CT scans. Head CTs for minor head injuries, headaches without red flags, and dizziness with a normal neurologic exam, abdominal CTs for patients with benign abdominal pain, 
CT pulmonary angiograms in super low-risk PE patients, in some centers, coronary CTs in patients with extremely low risk of cardiac ischemia, PAN scans for just about every multiple trauma patient. Well, thankfully, since then, observational studies have shown that this trend in increasing use of CT scans in the ED has finally slowed down, and in many instances has started to decrease. Nonetheless, I think there's still room for improvement when it comes to the rational ordering of CT scans in the ED, and there remains a huge variation in the utilization of CT use in EDs. In one recent study looking at patterns in CT utilization among ED docs in an urban academic ED, the docs who are high users of CT ordered almost twice as many CT scans as low users. And really, the bell curve shouldn't be that wide. We all see roughly the same kinds of patients within a department. Of course, each patient requires careful individual consideration in deciding whether or not they need a CT, but there's some general principles and specific facts that we need to know to help us become better CT utilizers. So let's get into the topic of when we really need a CT as opposed to an ultrasound or no imaging at all. So here's the case. A 65-year-old otherwise healthy woman presents to the ED with a 12-hour history of intermittent 8 out of 10 gradual onset vague diffuse abdominal pain with no radiation. She vomited once on arrival in the ED. The vomitus contained no blood or bile. She reports normal bowel movements, no urinary symptoms, and no fever. She's never had abdominal surgery and takes no meds. On exam, her vitals are normal. Her abdominal exam reveals normal bowel sounds, a flat, soft, and slightly tender abdomen diffusely with no peritoneal signs. Routine blood work was sent by the nurse and comes back with a white count of 14, but it's otherwise unremarkable. Before we get into whether this patient requires a CT to make a diagnosis, Dr. Margot, can you review for us what advantages does ultrasound have over CT? There's a couple of key advantages to ultrasound over CT. Number one, ultrasound allows us to assess Doppler flow, which is the flow of blood through a particular part of the body. That's very important in scenarios where you're worried about, for example, torsion. You can tell if the ovaries are vascularized or if the testes are vascularized. Another benefit of ultrasound is that it actually provides very high tissue contrast. An area where this becomes important is, for example, looking for gallstone disease, cholecholithiasis, or biliary colic. On CT, bile is, appears as a shade of gray, and bile stones or gallstones can be gray, and in fact, they can be difficult to discern. Whereas on ultrasound, you tend to get much better contrast, and you're able to pick up sludge or stones within the biliary tree. Ultrasound is also very good at evaluating the solid viscera. It's excellent for tissue contrast in the liver, kidneys, and the spleen. One of the problems that we have with ultrasound is that the sound beam is attenuated by air, so it's not good for looking at the bowel. It's attenuated by bone, and it's attenuated just by the tissue in general. So the ultrasound has trouble penetrating deep into the abdomen. And so the bowels, the mesentery, and the retroperitoneum are often not well seen by ultrasound. Finally, one of the issues with ultrasound is that it's time-consuming and a bit user-dependent. You often have to spend quite a bit of time to get good pictures, and that can be a negative in the ED setting when we're trying to get a diagnosis quickly for a sick patient. Great. That was an excellent review of, of how ultrasound can actually be beneficial compared to CT. Dr. Himmel, in general, when it comes to the adult patient with nonspecific abdominal pain, when is a CT indicated? You know, Dr. Margot just reviewed some of the advantages of ultrasound over CT for abdominal pain. How accurate is CT and when would you start with ultrasound or no imaging at all compared to a CT? This patient is 65 years of age and we know if you look at all patients with abdominal pain over 65 or 70, the mortality in the first six months is about 10%, very close to myocardial infarction. Abdominal pain in the older person is a big deal. And I must say, in someone over 65, probably it depends on what you're looking for. Certainly, if you're looking at something deep in the pelvis, in the gynecological area, or the right upper quadrant, it would be quite reasonable to begin with an ultrasound. However, if you're looking with undifferentiated abdominal pain in the older person, and you're worried about an abdominal cause, generally speaking, I'm going to go with a CT scan. 
Now, the sensitivity of a CT scan is not 100%. We tend to forget that all the time. It's probably in the realm of 92, 94, 96% for appendicitis and diverticulitis. And you've got to look at the habitus of the patient. The best contrast for the CT scan is human fat. So CT scans love fat people, and ultrasounds love skinny people. So if I've got a fat person with abdominal pain who's over 65, I'm probably going to go to CT scan, unless I'm worried about a pelvic problem or a retroperitoneal problem. On the other hand, a profoundly skinny person doesn't have all that beautiful contrast that the CT scan likes. And you may miss significant pathology in very, very skinny people, because all you see there is a bunch of bowel all globbed together, one big white mass. So fat is the wonderful thing when it comes to the CT scan. But the bottom line is older people, abdominal pain, I'm looking for an abdominal problem, I'm going to probably tend to get the CT of the abdomen. The exception being the pelvis or upper quadrant, where I may go with the ultrasound. You know, I think the EM community in general is getting better and better at using ultrasound as a first-line diagnostic test for things like nephrolithiasis, like we talked about in our Journal Jam podcast, and like appendicitis, which we talked about in our appendicitis podcast. But I still see what seems like way too many patients getting multiple CT scans for uncomplicated diverticulitis and for potential bowel obstruction. What about the idea that if you have a patient who you think might have diverticulitis, but they look pretty well, they don't have a fever, they're not septic, they don't have peritoneal signs, and you just want to confirm your suspicion that they have a low-grade diverticulitis. Would it be fair to say that in those patients, you can start with an ultrasound, whereas the patients that are really, really sick, who you're suspecting they might have an abscess, they have peritonitis, they have a high fever, they might be septic, in those patients, you go straight to CT. What, what do you think, Dr. Himmel? If you've got a patient who... You think it's going to go home, and you're reasonably confident about the diagnosis, such as diverticulitis, I think going to the ultrasound is perfectly reasonable. But the only caveat is they require follow-up later by a physician at some point. And certainly, you don't want to get a CT scan everybody with left lower quadrant pain, especially if it's your fourth attack. So absolutely, ultrasounds are quite helpful there. There's a lot of evidence in the radiology literature that ultrasound is good for detecting bowel pathology looking for dilated loops of bowel in the setting of obstruction, finding the inflammatory changes, as you mentioned, and in diverticulitis or perforation. But I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that it's not just determining what the patient's diagnosis is, but it's also helping to plan the treatment. And in the setting of bowel obstruction, the surgeons often want to know the cause, which can be harder for us to determine by ultrasound. And in the setting of significant intra-abdominal sepsis, such as diverticulitis, the treatment's going to be percutaneous drainage, and the interventional radiologist will likely need a CT scan to help them plan their drainage route. I think you showed me an article from the British Medical Journal taking nine different approaches to abdominal pain. Clinical assessment, clinical assessment plus ultrasound, clinical assessment plus CT scan, clinical assessment plus ultrasound, then CT scan. And what he demonstrated was clinical assessment plus the ultrasound, reduced the number of CT scans down by about 50%. So who knows, maybe in 5, 10 years, we'll be ultrasounding most patients that come through the emergency department with abdominal pain as an initial screening test and then decide whether to go on to CT or not, except for, of course, those really sick patients who uh, we have a high suspicion that they're going to need surgery that night. Certainly for patients with kidney stones, for patients with appendicitis, for patients with diverticulitis, where the path is reasonably clear in your mind, where they aren't deathly ill and need urgent work done now, ultrasound is a good starting point. On the other hand, for other conditions, such as uh, acute mesenteric ischemia, such as ischemic colon with perforation, such as a closed loop with a tender abdomen, I mean, these are sick people. You're probably going to go right for the CT scan there because you don't want to waste time. Let's talk a little bit about indications for contrast with belly CTs. Dr. Margot, let's say we decide that this 65-year-old, otherwise healthy woman needs an abdominal CT. What are the factors that you take into consideration when deciding whether this patient should have a plain CT, a CT with IV contrast, a CT with IV and oral contrast, or the triple threat, a CT with IV, oral, and rectal contrast? How do you make those decisions, and how can you help emergency doctors decide when they're ordering 
what kind of contrast, if any, they need. There is a a move in the radiology community and the radiology literature to try to limit the use of contrast. And, and that's a very good reason because there is some nephrotoxicity related to intravenous contrast. There are many indications where literature has shown us that unenhanced CT can be just as useful as contrast-enhanced CT. Like, uh, for example, for an appendicitis, diverticulitis, those kinds of things. Yeah, and also for our renal colic or obstructive uropathy. Okay. However, we also have to be cognizant that when patients are coming into hospital with undifferentiated abdominal pain, they may very well likely have a diagnosis other than simple appendicitis or diverticulitis. Particularly in the elderly population, we have to worry about things like underlying malignancy or vascular pathology. One of the issues that we face is that if we do an unenhanced CT and we find that the patient, for example, has a colon cancer with a microperforation and that's the cause of their pain, we've now got a diagnosis and we've exposed the patient to a CT scan, but we haven't done a staging CT and we haven't evaluated the patient's abdominal lymph nodes and we haven't properly evaluated the liver because we haven't given the intravenous contrast. And that patient is then going to need in the near future another CT scan to actually stage their cancer. So So to get around this, most radiology departments have a policy that unless the emergency physician specifically indicates that they're thinking of obstructive uropathy or in some cases appendicitis, that as a routine, patients coming through with undifferentiated abdominal pain will at least get intravenous contrast. And we would save the tailored unenhanced CT scans for cases where we're pretty sure what the clinical diagnosis is. So suffice to say that it all depends on your pretest probability. If you have no idea what's going on and you just know the patient has this abdominal pain that isn't gastroenteritis, that there's something going on there, then that patient will probably need IV contrast. If that patient's elderly and let's say demented and you can't get a good history, you're going to be getting a CT with IV contrast. In a young patient in whom you're quite sure what the diagnosis is based on your history and physical, you might not go with a contrast. You might be fine just with doing the plain CT. I guess really the important thing is the communication between the emergency physician and the radiologist, which will help to dictate whether the patient needs contrast or not. So that's IV contrast. What about oral contrast? I still see some patients in the emergency department sitting there drinking their big uh, slurpy cup of contrast for oral contrast for CT. What are the real indications for oral contrast? When should we be discussing with our radiologists whether a patient needs oral contrast or not? The radiology literature is actually all over the map on this. To summarize it conceptually in a way that's easy to understand, if you're worried about a bowel obstruction and you give a patient oral contrast, what you're doing is you're opacifying their bowel, and then it makes it easier for you to follow the bowel and see if the oral contrast passed distally. So it's making it easier for you to figure out if there's a functionally significant bowel obstruction. However, on the flip side, if you opacify the bowel lumen with oral contrast, it can make it a bit more difficult for the radiologist to assess the bowel wall. And assessing the bowel wall is important in scenarios, for example, where you're worried about ischemia and there's less vascular supply to the bowel wall and you want to look to see whether the bowel wall is enhancing or not. The problem that we sometimes run into is that although we think that the patient has diverticulitis, they may in fact have a malignancy. And then if you haven't given the oral contrast, you have less diagnostic certainty when you're evaluating the patient's mesentery for things like lymphadenopathy and cancer staging. So similar reasons why we would use IV contrast. Correct. So So suffice to say that even though both the emergency and the radiology literature is quite clear that the addition of IV and or oral contrast doesn't help much in the acute setting to diagnose appendicitis or diverticulitis or bowel obstruction, it can be useful in that patient in terms of deciding exactly what the cause is, staging their cancers, and that sort of thing. I guess suffice to say then from the emergency doctor's point of view, the patient who should be getting IV and or oral contrast are those patients who you suspect might have an underlying malignancy those patients who are really sick or those patients who you don't really know what's going on. Yes, I think that's a good way to phrase it. Another way to kind of illustrate the point might be through a little bit of a clinical vignette. 
if you, for example, had a patient who was in your emerge with abdominal pain and the cause of their pain was a portal vein thrombosis or a superior mesenteric vein thrombosis, and that patient got an unenhanced CT because somebody felt that it was most likely an appendicitis, the diagnosis of the portal or superior mesenteric vein thrombosis would be missed if contrast wasn't given. The bottom line boils down to careful clinical assessment and history and communication between the emergency doctor and the radiologist. If we're dealing with a situation where we're fairly certain what the diagnosis is, appendicitis, uncomplicated diverticulitis would be examples, then there's not very much diagnostic utility to adding intravenous or oral contrast to the CT scan. However, if we do an unenhanced CT scan, there's a chance that we could miss unusual diagnoses that are really significant. An example could be a portal vein thrombosis. So the key to figure out uh, what needs to be done for the patient really relies on the clinical assessment that's performed in the eMERGE and whether or not that can be communicated back to the radiologist when they're protocoling the CT. Absolutely. I mean, maybe we should be writing on the requisition CT, rule out appendicitis, low pretest probability or medium pretest probability or high pretest probability, or CT, undifferentiated abdominal pain. I don't know what's going on in this patient. I agree 100% that it's really the communication with the radiology department, whether that you're writing that down or whether you actually get on the phone with them. But uh, I found in my personal experience that when I'm not sure whether a patient needs contrast or not, just getting on the phone and having a 30-second conversation with the radiologist and we come to a consensus, and then it ends up being better for the patient in the long run. In our previous podcast on the highlights of the Whistler Conference, Anil Chopra talked about the controversial topic of contrast nephropathy, but we haven't covered yet contrast allergy. Dr. Himmel, if a patient has a known previous contrast allergy, but you really need a CT with contrast for whatever reason, let's say you suspect mesenteric ischemia, how do you handle that situation? Well, first and foremost, if you define allergy as IgE mediated with an allergen, I don't think contrast allergy probably exists, number one. Number two, in the good old days, people used to ask questions about shellfish and being allergic to iodine and so forth. Well, that's a myth. There's no doubt people with multiple allergies are probably more likely to get allergic reactions or allergic-type reactions. But being allergic to shellfish or being allergic to shrimp or being allergic to iodine, which is a bit of a myth, is irrelevant. I want to get that out of the way completely. Next, in the good old days, contrast used to be very ionic and very high osmolality. So it was basically ionic-based, high osmolality-type chemicals. They had a lot of anaphylactoid reactions because when you give someone something concentrated to drink, anaphylactic reactions were possible. The new IV contrast right now is basically is non-ionic and normal or low osmolality. So the instance of reactions has dropped dramatically. Let's call them reactions, not allergic reactions. And the figures I've heard right now is all comers reactions now in the area of 2 or 3%. 30 years ago, maybe in 15, but that was because of osmolality. The next thing is, what's the chance of death or life-threatening anaphylactoid reactions? Well, serious anaphylactoid reactions are probably in the realm of 1 in 1,000, and death probably in the realm of 1 in 100,000 to 500,000 or a million. So it's extraordinarily rare. So what's the practical solution? What do you do when someone says, I'm allergic to contrast? Well, you get a history, first of all, and see if they almost drop dead. Secondly, Next question is, are they going to get the CT scan tomorrow or in 12 hours? Are they going to get the CT scan now? So every hospital has their protocol. I'll tell you the protocol at North York at the present time. If they require the CT scan the next day, you do the following. You use three drugs. One's called prednisone, one's called Benadryl, and one's called ranitidine or Zantac. What they normally do right now is about... 12 hours before the procedure, they get 40 milligrams of prednisone. Some hospitals use 50. And 12 hours before the procedure, they give 150 milligrams of ranitidine. Tomorrow, 
before the study, a couple hours, you repeat 40 milligrams of prednisone, 150 of vernetidine, and then you give Benadryl 50 milligrams an hour before the study. But let's say they need a CT scan now, and they're quite concerned. They turned red, and they flushed, and they got lightheaded, and they got epinephrine. So you're going to assume, yes, this was a real anaphylactoid-type reaction. What are you going to do? Well, based on no real good evidence, because not IG-mediated, you're going to give the same three drugs. You're going to give esteroid, you're going to give ranitidine, and you're going to give Vandril. So you're going to follow your hospital protocol. And here's a protocol being used at the present time. Solucortef, hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams two hours before the procedure. Renitidine, 50 milligrams one hour before the procedure. That's IV. They're both given IV this time. And Benadryl, 50 milligrams IV one hour before the procedure. So we've talked pretty extensively about belly CTs. Let's move on to head CTs. For patients who we suspect might have a bleed in the head, and let's talk about non-traumatic bleeds because most emergency physicians are familiar with traumatic bleeds and where to look for those. But for a non-traumatic bleed, where do you look? Uh, So I guess there's three spaces where the blood can be. One is the subarachnoid space. So that's actually all the black areas on a CT head, the basal cisterns, the sulci, and the fissures, also within the ventricles. And then there's blood that's actually present inside the brain parenchyma itself. Those are the uh, non-traumatic intra cerebral hemorrhages. For the intracerebral hemorrhages, the most common place is the basal ganglia, about 40 to 50% of cases, and that's typically due to a hypertensive bleed. Another common area in the elderly population where amyloid angiopathy is a consideration is at the convexities in the frontal parietal lobes. And then other places where we see bleeds slightly less common are the thalamus, the pons, and the cerebellum. So there's basically five areas that we should be looking for intraparenchymal bleeds, The basal ganglia is the most common, lobar, and that's typically sort of the elderly patients. And then there's also the thalamus, the pons, and the cerebellum. Good. And Dr. Himmel, when would you recommend a CT with contrast after you've done a plain CT head? What are the indications for a CT contrast of the head? There's a couple, actually. If you worry about a brain tumor, you're going to get a CT with contrast. Now, of course, there's a real hint about a brain tumor if you've got a CT scan without contrast. Brain tumors cause what's called vasogenic edema. They tend to get hypodensity in the white matter because around the tumor, there's a lot of leakage of fluid. The blood-brain barrier is screwed up. So you see a lesion in a odd part of the brain rather than the cortex. It's involving the white matter and it's large. It looks all blackish. That's often a tumor or an abscess or something of that sort. So if you're about a tumor, you've got to get a CT with contrast. One key way to distinguish the vasogenic edema of a tumor compared to the cytotoxic edema of ischemia on a plain CT is the following. Vasogenic edema of a tumor spares the gyri. So if you can see those gyri clearly, that's probably a tumor. On the flip side, if you can't see those gyri, the gyri are obliterated, that's probably cytotoxic edema from an ischemic stroke. And certainly, you know, you get the occasional person who comes in with a brand new headache for six, seven, eight days, or a person who's obsessed about having a brain tumor, or a great change in personality and a lot of frontal signs. I think it's important to just remember, if you're going to get a CT scan without contrast, You've made a brain tumor less likely, but you really haven't ruled it out entirely. Some brain tumors can be isodense. The other case is vascular disease, carotid artery dissection, vertebral artery dissection. You're going to have to get a CT with contrast because you want to look at the vessels. And of course, if you're worried about cerebral sinus thrombosis, once again, you're looking within the sinuses, you have to get contrast. So if you want to look at the Vascular structures totally apart from stroke, particularly dissections and cerebral venous thrombosis, that's where you're going to get a CTA or a CTV. The two are a bit different. Okay, so the bottom line for when to get a CT with contrast are the patients who you suspect might have a brain tumor or abscess. And in the patient that 
you're looking for vascular pathology. So whether that's an aneurysm, you want to get a CT angiogram of the head, the circle of Willis, whether that's a carotid or vertebral artery dissection, you want to get a CT angiogram of the head and neck, or whether that's a cerebral venous thrombosis that you're looking for, you want to get a CT venogram, and it's important to communicate that to your radiologist. So we've covered some interesting topics on abdominal CT, on CT heads. Let's move on to CT of the C-spine. Now, the Canadian C-spine rules and the Nexus C-spine rules have been pretty good to help us decide whether a trauma patient requires imaging of the C-spine. However, the first imaging modality of choice seems to be less clear. In most Canadian centers, we start with an X-ray, and then in some patients, we'll go on to CT. In other centers, the C-spine X-ray is skipped altogether, and CT is ordered right off the bat. Dr. Himmel, when, in your opinion, is a CT of the C-spine required? So, of course, there's always three things with every patient, right? There's the patient or the protoplasm, there's a story, and there's what you find. If the protoplasm sucks, the plamor is the person 65 or 75 or 80, they have terrible osteoporosis, I'm going to seriously consider getting a CT scan. That's the protoplasm. If the story is frightening, uh, they fell five or six steps onto their head, they were ejected from a car, and of course the physical findings. For example, any focal neurological physical findings, I'm going to tend to get imaging in a CT scan. If you're going to get a cervical spine x-ray as you're imaging, it's got to be a good quality, excellent C-spine. You see from C1 to the C7-T1 junction, and you have a good view of all the vertebrae and so forth. Look for things we're all trained to look for. Well, in patients who are elderly or patients who are in collars or patients who are multiple trauma patients, how often do you get a really good look at the cervical spine? Well, not that often. In fact, there have been a couple of studies that show that in those patients who had ordinary cervical spines and fractures were missed, it's because the views weren't great. So if I'm really worried about the patient, if I'm moderately worried about the patient, I'm going right to the CT of the C-spine. Somebody with ankylosing spondylitis of the neck, I get a CT spine. Years ago, I had a colleague who got the cervical spine of somebody with ankylosing spondylitis who had neck pain after a fall. The guy was 45 years old. And the report came back, no fracture seen. However, the patient has ankylosing spondylitis. Well, he came back quadriplegic later. In fact, one of the most important exclusion criteria for the Ottawa C-spine rules is the patient having a history of ankylosing spondylitis. If I see a patient with even minor trivial neck trauma and they have a history of ankylosing spondylitis, I get worried about a fracture. So one little pearl that I can add is also in the setting of people with trauma is always have to make sure that we're not missing something like a carotid or vertebral dissection. And if there is any concern because of the clinical picture that we could be dealing with uh, vascular injury, that's something that you'd have to communicate with the radiologist because the CT would be tailored differently. It would be done, as we said previously, a CT angiogram of the neck as opposed to a trauma protocol, which basically just looks at the bones. So we've been talking a lot about CTs, and we hear all kinds of stats being thrown around as to the radiation effects of CT. So Dr. Himmel, what's the truth about CT radiation? How should we think about the risk to our patients, and how should we communicate it to our patients? There's no doubt there's a risk from radiation. A chest x-ray is decimal one millisievert. If you're alive for one year in North America, you're getting three millisieverts. So a chest x-ray gives you 10 days of radiation. Forget it. A CT of the head is equal to approximately 30, 40 chest x-rays. Right? So that's about four or five millisieverts. Even less with the new protocols. So a CT scan of the head is eight or nine months of radiation. That's substantial. A CT of the chest for a pulmonary embolism is equal to about 80 chest x-rays. You're talking about 8, 10, 12, sometimes 14 millisieverts. That's four years of radiation. So the figures I've heard thrown about are the following. So 10 to 12 millisieverts, CT of the chest or CT of the abdomen, you're increasing your risk of cancer by one in a thousand all comers over the next 20 or 30 years. So you got to put in context, does one CT of the chest have increased risk of cancer somewhat? Yes. Is one in a thousand a lot? 
I don't know. I mean, one third of people are going to get cancer eventually. So your risk is going to go from 33% because you're a human being to 33.01%. It's not that much. Will I tell them there's a small risk from radiation? Yes. But if they're reading this CT scan, I will have to put it in context. Now, I haven't talked about five-year-olds, two-year-olds, young people, and pregnant people. It's very interesting because I'm still a little bit torn between where you say that a third of patients are going to get cancer anyhow, and you're increasing the risk from 33% to 33.1%. That doesn't seem like much of a risk at all. But then at the same time, saying that it's 100 chest x-rays worth of radiation for one abdominal CT. Use your clinical judgment. Does the person have a condition that requires evaluation, and is a CT scan the best test? If it is, you do it. On the other hand, if it's an unnecessary test or a test that has very minimal utility, don't just throw on CT scans. One thing that I think our listeners may find reassuring is that many of the newer CT scanners come with embedded software that has allowed us to significantly decrease the dose of radiation to the patient without compromising image quality. And so as we move into the future, I mean, centers currently that have state-of-the-art scanners and as other centers replace their older equipment, I think some of the numbers of how much millisieverts patients are getting from routine CTs are going to decrease. One of the things that we've done at our hospital is work very diligently to take some of the most common tests that we do, such as CT heads, and just systemically reduce the radiation dose associated with those tests. Another thing that we've done, and we've touched upon it, is the ability to use low-dose protocols. So in certain clinical scenarios where we're fairly certain of the diagnosis, we can do a low-dose study, for example, to look for obstructive uropathy, or a low-dose study to follow a pulmonary nodule. Finally, I think communication with the radiologist is really important. If you have a scenario, for example, you think they have appendicitis and it's a young female, but they're obese, and you don't think that ultrasound is going to be of diagnostic utility, and you're fairly certain that this patient only has pathology in the right lower quadrant, there is a role for simply doing a targeted CT scan of the pelvis and not imaging the rest of the abdomen and then significantly decreasing the patient's dose. Well, we've run out of time to talk about MRI, but I'd like to refer you to one of my favorite episodes, episode number 26 on low back pain with Dr. Himmel and Brian Steinhardt, where we cover the indications for a spine MRI, which really constitutes almost all the true emergencies that require an MRI in the ED. And for this month's quote of the month, we have one from Nietzsche. To learn to see, to accustom the eye to calmness, to patience, and to allow things to come to it, to defer judgment, and to acquire the habit of approaching and grasping an individual case from all sides. This is the first preparatory schooling of intellectuality. One must not respond immediately to a stimulus. One must acquire a command of the obstructing and isolating instincts. Well, as we near the end of this episode, I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in and ask that if you have any suggestions or feedback on how we can make EM cases better, please email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. So until next time, take it easy. Mm -hmm.